Bibles, let's go to the book of Colossians this morning. Colossians chapter number 2. As we continue in our study of Colossians, I want to read, uh, we'll, we'll only be covering uh, verse 4 and 5. We'll touch on 6 and 7 this morning briefly. Um, but I'd like to read verses 1 through verse number 7 as our text this morning. And let's meditate on that as we read it together. And so let's begin there in verse number one. For I want you to know how great a struggle I have for you and for those at Laodicea and for all who have seen me face to face, have not seen me face to face, that their hearts may be encouraged, being knit together in love to reach all the riches of full assurance of understanding and the knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. I say this in order that no one may delude you with plausible arguments. For though I am absent in my in body, yet I am with you in spirit, rejoicing to see your good order and the firmness of your faith in Christ. Therefore, as you've received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him, rooted and built up in him, established in the faith, just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. Let's pray together. Father, we ask you that you would add your blessing to the reading of the word. Father, we ask you that you would do a work in us and through us today. Father, give us eyes to see and ears to hear, a heart to understand and obey what we see and hear this morning. And Lord, we just thank you for your faithfulness week after week to open the word of God to us that we could learn from it. And Lord, may we be more conformed to your image as we walk through this service today. It's in the precious name of Jesus we ask it. Amen. Plausible Arguments is the title of the message this morning. Um, every one of us have watched a action movie, and in those action movies, at some point, they cease to be an action movie and become a science fiction movie, because there's no way you're going to jump off a 30-foot building, a 30-story building, and land in a swimming pool and be okay. That's just not going to work, all right? Um, and uh, I, I'm always, you know, even, even the old westerns, you know, somebody gets smacked in the head with a pistol. You know, and then the guy gets up and fights five rounds. So, like, if you've ever been hit in the head, you're not going to get up and do that, all right? Uh, you're not right for weeks. And But they have these unbelievable things. I, I remember, how, how many of you ever watched the A-Team series, the old one? You know what I'm talking about? All right, yeah. Got some, I got some A-Team fans in here. And I always get tickled at that one. You know, you got the, the helicopter chase in the one. And I remember seeing this as I got a little older. And the helicopter chase is taking place. And the A-Team is then broken down a little helicopter, you know. But they're out maneuvering this Apache helicopter somehow or another. And this Apache helicopter is chasing them. And they do a little maneuver. And the Apache helicopter with the bad guys are in crashes into the side of the mountain. And then just a big old ball of fire comes up. And then they cut away. You know, and the A-Team gets away. And then... After you see the A-team fly off, they cut back to the bad guys, and they're climbing out of the helicopter, dusting themselves off, you know. And I'm like, I don't think that's the way that works, you know. Uh, and nobody expects it to be true to life. Um, last week, we did the time machine, or a week before, did the time machine with the, uh, the, the uh, kids. And it's so fun. I would sit in the hallways, and one of the kids goes, that time machine's not real. And I'm like, What? How did you know that, you know? Uh, but, you know, it, just the enjoyment of that. We, we know when it's left the idea of believable. The danger of a real lie, though, is that it is believable. The danger of a lie is that it has a measure of truth in it that is plausible to us. 
and it begins to sink into our mind and we're thinking, maybe, maybe, that, maybe that's what we're supposed to do. Because it has a measure of truth mixed in with a lie and it's harder to distinguish. The whole purpose of counterfeits is to make them look as much like the real thing as possible. Because you want to pass it off as being the genuine article. And I think this is what Paul is wrestling with of these that are coming in, and they're not telling them to deny Christ altogether, but they're trimming portions of the message of the gospel away and packaging it and selling it as if it's the real thing. We're adding to and diluting the gospel and selling it as the real thing. And this is the danger. Last week we saw that all we need and all that we have is hidden in Christ. Everything that you need, and we sang it tonight, today, this morning, we sang it again, that everything is in Christ. All the treasures are hidden in him. It's not unfair to say of that text in verse number three that we read this morning, in whom are hid all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. It would not be unfair to say, in whom only are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. It is only in Christ that we find these treasures. It is only in Christ that we have a hope of salvation. It is only in Christ that we're going to have resurrected bodies. There is no other source outside of Christ. And this is the drum that Paul has been beating all along. And he continues to sound the same melody note every time, Christ alone. He calls it the treasures And I'm reminded of 2 Corinthians 4 and 7 where Paul tells us that we have this treasure in earthen vessels, that the excellency of power may be of God and not of us. This treasure of the gospel, we have it in these broken, sin-marred vessels of our bodies, but we hold an immeasurable treasure in Christ, and we have that hope to take to our neighbor's. I want you to see verse number one and verse number four, and let's look at the introduction statements here. He says, I, in verse number one, I want you to know. I want you to know, and he lays this out, and then in verse number four, he says, I say this in order. And he said, so I'm, I'm making a, a logical con, uh, line of argument here. I've, I've told you everything is found in Christ, and I've said this in order that you would not be dissuaded or deluded with believable arguments. He said, I don't want these plausible arguments to take root in your thinking and delude you. So I'm giving you who Christ is, that he is the firstborn of creation. He is the firstborn of the dead. He is over the church. He is all in all. There is no other. He is all sufficient. And he said, I'm saying this, lest someone delude you. I don't want you to be deluded. Notice, if you would, in verse number four, he said, and he's going to unpack all of this next chapter and tell us to watch out for the false teaching that would come along. He said, verse number four, what does he say? That no one would delude you. And then verse number eight, see to it that no one takes you captive. This is a danger. And then in verse number 16, he said, I want to make sure that you let no one pass judgment upon you. And then in verse number 18, let no one disqualify you. And so he's warning us of those who are coming along with these plausible arguments to delude and to deceive and to entrap us. The word delude is not one we use very often here. The word simply means to deceive or to trick. It means to to conceal the reality of plausible arguments. It's a believable argument. You may have heard somebody use the term, well, they have plausible deniability. Plausible being that that could make sense. We could see how that could unfold. You know, if, if you ask me, hey, why didn't you come to dinner last night? I'm like, oh, I took a rocket ship to the moon. Well, that's not plausible, all right? 
But if I said to you, I have a headache, you probably don't believe it, but it's plausible. All right? I'm probably blowing you off, but at least it's plausible, right? And uh, but the idea is there's a plausible argument. By the way, I have a headache. No, I'm teasing. Uh, but uh, the, um, the, it's plausible. There's reasons behind what's going on. And you can say, okay, all right, I get it. There's some plausibility to it. And this is the arguments that are being laid out. And arguments, we get the idea arguments is two people shouting at one another, okay? That's not what an argument is in this context. The argument is a line of reasoning. It is saying, I believe this, and because of this, it leads me to this, it leads me to this, and here's my conclusion. It's laying out a line of reasoning. And arguments are not necessarily bad. They're actually very good things. We ought to have lines of reasoning. And, and yet he says, I want to make sure that our lines of reasoning are measured by who Christ is. And so plausible argument, something that is believable. My, my brother, when he was in kindergarten, um, he was just learning to write his letters. But every day you took your little assignment pad home and you had to have it signed by your parents. Well, my mom's name is Pam. And he got to school one morning and realized she hadn't assigned, she had not signed his assignment pad. He was going to get in trouble. And so he's like, I, I got to do something. And he's remembered that one of his characters in his book was named Pam. And so he looked up how to spell Pam. And then he took his pencil and he wrote Pam on his signature pad for, his, for my mom. The, the teacher didn't believe it, right? Because it wasn't plausible. It wasn't something that was able to deceive. The danger with the devil's tactics and false teacher's tactics is that it is able to deceive. It is able to get in behind our defenses. It doesn't come at us as if somehow or another a pitchfork and red horns, but rather he comes in as an angel of light. We know we have wandered into speculative and plausible arguments and into delusion when we leave Christ. We hear things like this too often. I know what the Bible says, but... And we're leaving it out there as if something needed to be added to what Scripture has said. Well, I, I, I love Jesus and the church, however. And we begin to make plausible arguments. And I think many, many plausible arguments that present themselves within the church are self-deceived, trying to solve some real or perceived problem, but usually we are trimming the message of Christ to solve it. You can't trim Christ to solve the problem down. You see, this persuasive speech that would come, and, and are we to argue that persuasive speech is, is not good? No, we want to persuade people to the gospel. We want to make sure that the arguments that are persuasive arguments are arguments that are leading us from truth and are bound by truth. And, and this is compelling. Th these arguments that they are teaching were compelling us to walk away from what we know to be true. And many will even use Scripture to twist our thinking, and this is why we must have Scripture in context and in agreement with the whole of Scripture. You, you cannot just jump and pick what you want from Scripture and add it in. I, I'm reminded of the fellow in kind of a humorous thing. Uh, he said, you know, I want to know what God wants me to do, and so he would just flip through his Bible each morning and open it up and point and say, okay, I'll do that today. And he opened his Bible up, and he says, he that findeth the wife findeth a good thing. And so he spent the whole day looking for somebody to marry him. And the next morning he woke up and he opened up Paul and he said, if you're single, stay single. And he's like, oh my goodness. And so now he has to stay single. And then, you know, he's like, this is just not working real well. And he tried, I'll try it again. And he opened it up and he says, Judas went out and hanged himself. And he goes, well, 
that can't be what I'm supposed to do. And so he turned to another passage very quickly and he says, go and do likewise, you know. And he's like, oh, this is not working well. It, it cannot be this cut and paste kind of thing where we pull something from over here and pull something from over here, but we take it in the order of arguments that God has laid it out for us. Now, that is not to say that we won't from time to time pull a text of scripture from the middle of a book and share a message, but when we do that, it's very important that it be rooted to the text of what it is in, the context that it is in, and it not be taken out of its context, and it be in agreement with what it's saying around it and in the whole of scripture. Uh, and these plausible arguments can be very deceptive. Often they are driven by emotion. They lean into experience. And emotion and experience begin to trump truth. And let me make something extremely clear to his church. Our emotions do not change the truth. Our experience cannot change the truth. We must stand upon what the truth says. And as compassionate as we might be for anyone or as convinced we are in, uh, of experiences that we've gone through, truth must reign. I read this satire a few weeks ago, and I think satire has an interesting way of cutting through the cobwebs at times. It's, it's a little long, but I think you'll, you'll, you'll get where we're going with it. Matt Kennedy, he's a pastor. I, I've never met the man, but I found this online. He wrote this little piece of satire. He said, I used to think that stealing was wrong. But then my child told me that from a very young age, he, used, he has felt compelled to steal. He did not choose these longings, and he has struggled his whole life to suppress them, knowing that people would never accept him for who he is. Hearing my son's story, he made me reconsider my own prejudice and deeply held beliefs. The law against stealing was given under the old covenant at a time when God appointed land to each tribe and clan. Personal or family possessions in that context had a sacred meaning. We, however, are under the new covenant. It is true that the apostles and Jesus, still under the rigid influence of the Old Testament, sometimes said negative things about stealing. They also tell people to give up their possessions and to give to whoever asks and not to try to recover what has been taken. All this together leads me to conclude that there is a trajectory in the New Testament that undoes property ownership to such an extent that resurrection people should not even say that taking something without the owner's permission is stealing. That is such a clobber word. I propose the term proactive generosity. So many people are caught up in greed and stinginess. The proactively generous person takes action to relieve the greedy of the source of their sin by relieving them of their possessions. This proactively frees the greedy to live in a more generous way of being. Proactive generosity is an act of love, really. In short, after much prayer and study, taking other people's things may have been wrong in the primitive setting of the Mosaic community, but Jesus has changed all that. Since my child, who I know to be a lovely person, clearly being, bearing the fruit of the Holy Spirit, deeply desires to take other people's possessions, I can only accept that this is who God made him to be. That's what love looks like. For too long, those who long to take other people's things without permission have been marginalized and criminalized. No more. Jesus teaches us to love the outcast. He ate and drank with tax collectors. Love does not judge. Love always affirms. Now, we know the trajectory of the argument. 
But do you see how scripture is taken and twisted into this argument? And there's a plausible line of argument. Oh, well, maybe that was different. Maybe this is changed. And shouldn't love affirm? And this is where we must root ourselves in truth and in the text of Scripture if we're to walk forward. You see, these deceivers who would not have us leave Christ altogether, but they would add a little to Christ or take a little bit away from Christ. They would water him down on one end or add to him on another. How do they get this delusion into the church and, and without completely removing the appearance of Christianity? And, and by the way, I think the context here is not that these people were saying, hey, church at Colossae, deny Christ. No, they were saying, hey, Come to Christ, he's a means to your full enlightenment, and here's how you go about it. And they begin to cut parts of Christ off and add to Christ here, and take a little bit there and add a little bit here, but we're still going to call it Christianity. And that's why Paul spends so much time, and he's going to follow up here, telling us who Christ is and what Christ has done, because we want no confusion over the Christ we're speaking of. And so we come, how do they work this in then to the church. I'm sure there are more things, but as I meditated on this this week, I think there are two things. One leads to the next. I think the first thing that we do is a gospel that demands everything now or a gospel that is severed from the resurrection. A gospel that doesn't depend upon a resurrection. And then the other leads into that. It is compassion or sympathy that dismisses truth. Compassion or sympathy that is unanchored for truth is a means by which these plausible arguments come into the mix and they deceive us and they lead us into a false gospel. We say things like in the gospel without a resurrection in 1 Corinthians chapter 15 and verse 19, Paul says this, he said, look, if we have hope of Christ in this life only, we're of all men most miserable. Because this life only is not where we experience the fullness of what Christ has promised us. There is another world coming where death will be no more. I want you to see the already and the not yet of Scripture in another place in Hebrews chapter number 2. I'm going to turn there very quickly and I'll begin reading. But in Hebrews chapter 2, in verse number five, uh, down through verse number nine, we see this argument laid out, but I'm going to read verse number seven. He said, you made him, Jesus, for a little while lower than the angels. You have crowned him with glory and honor, putting everything in subjection under his feet. Now in putting everything in subjection to him, he left nothing outside his control. Now let me just stop and ask you, church, do you believe this morning, and you can just say amen if you do, that Jesus is Lord of all? We believe that. We stand upon that, that everything is a subjection to him. But he says this, at present, verse number eight, at present, we do not yet see everything in subjection to him. I believe this, every nation will bow to the authority of the Lord Jesus Christ. But when I look through the news today, nations are not bowing to Jesus Christ. I believe that every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord to the glory of the Father, but every tongue is not confessing that today. 
And we see that at present, this is not the case. But look what he says in verse number 9. But we see him, or we see Jesus, who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death, so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. We see his death and his burial and his resurrection are dependent for the whole work of what the gospel has promised. The gospel this morning, and I I want you to hear me well, church, the gospel has promised us far more than it has delivered to us in this present world. That hope right there is what makes the gospel so appealing to us today. Is that it's given us, I mean, and think of the abundant riches we enjoy now. But it's given us, it's promised us far more than it's delivered to us now. What are these arguments in the church right now? What are they saying that we want in the present? Well, I mean, how many of you believe that ultimately, when the resurrection happens, that there'll be no more sickness? Well, I want a, I want a world with no more sickness now. And so what do we argue? If you love Jesus and you're right with him, he wants you to be healthy all the time. But doesn't the gospel promise that all of our physical pain will be gone? Does it promise that, church? Yes, it does. But does it promise it now? No, it doesn't. Well, didn't we say that all the riches and treasures are hidden in Christ and that he is the wealth of everything, both in this life and the life to come? Yes, he is. And so that means that I should have all the wealth now. No. I'm not promised all the wealth and health and prosperity in the present. Now one day, when time is no more, I'm gonna walk on streets of gold, I'm gonna live in a city with walls of jasper and gates of pearl, and I will stand before him, and it'll be a perfect world without sickness, without pain, and with all of those things, but I'm not promised that now. Now we've been given a cross to bear. Now there is suffering, and I think we open the door for plausible arguments when we say the gospel has to give us everything it promises now without the resurrection. The resurrection must be in place. We must hold that in our mind. I mean, we look at the struggle over sin. How many of us this morning, be honest to say, we struggle over sin? How many of us, you grieve in the struggle over sin? And we we sit in the moment and we think, man, if this could just be over, what would it be like to worship him? What would it be like to stand in his presence and know that there is no inhibitions, there is no hidden idols in our hearts? And yet that struggle with sin will continue until the trumpet sounds. Why? We hold this treasure in earthen vessels. Earthen vessels. Why? That the excellency of the power may be of God and not of us. Acceptance by others. Unity in total. I mean, we we look around the world today, and one of the criticisms that Christianity gets is, well, why are there so many denominations? Because we live in the now, not the then. We live in the now right now, and here's the thing. There is room for faithful brothers and sisters to disagree on secondary things. I don't want to shock you, but some people don't agree with me on baptism. You weren't shocked by that, apparently. Um, So they don't agree with me on baptism, and I can't believe how they could be so wrong, you know? The, The reality is I stand firmly on what I believe in baptism that is by immersion for believers, And I I have no apologies on that regard. But I also understand that somebody might not agree with me on that. It's not my enemy. 
if he's holding up Christ as sufficient for salvation and Christ alone, then we can stand as brothers and sisters in Christ. Though we may not fellowship together in the same community of believers in the present, one day when the trumpet sounds and time is no more, every nation, language, and tribe from all over the world and all over the generations, from every generation, will stand together and with one voice we will sing, He is worthy. And we will worship Him together. And I got news for you. I think He'll probably sit us all down and straighten us out on doctrine. He'll probably have something to teach us all. But in the present right now, there's not going to be that complete unity that we long for. And we do hunger for that unity. And we long to see it. But we're not in the then. We're in the now. And we're waiting for that day to be the fulfillment of what the gospel has promised. The struggle with sin, the acceptance of others, the unity in total. We hear things like this, well, God doesn't want me to suffer. God must want me to have a full and healthy life. You're saying, okay, so the opposite of that, if that's not true, then the opposite of that is true. God wants you to suffer all the time and have a very poor life. No. See, that's where the false teaching gets in, because it's only half the truth. Sometimes God orders that you and I would suffer in this life, and many faithful servants of God have found what it is to suffer, and God is sufficient in their suffering. You know, I long to see a day when justice is perfected. We can't, you can't look around this world without seeing injustice on every land, and not just in the United States of America, but in every nation of the world where those that are weaker are taken over by the stronger, and those that are stronger are, are, are oppressed, and we see this happening. We see it happening with men using their power. We see people with money using their power. We see all of that happening, and do we long to see that justice balance, church? Yes. And we long to see that, but here's the reality. No matter who's in charge, you still have imperfect men meeting out imperfect justice. But I got news for you. One day, the judge of all the earth who will do right will balance the scales. And man, I can't wait to get to the end of Colossians because he tells us that we can wait for that day because his grace is sufficient. We ought to labor today to do the best we can by our neighbors, to love our neighbors and to love those around us and to labor to do right But there is a longing in our heart for more than we can accomplish on this side of eternity. And there ought to be. There's a longing that ought to nag at us to see it happen. We demand now what God has promised then, and in doing that, we question God when we don't get what we want. We're like a little two-year-old that wants their dessert before they ate their vegetables. Give it to me now. Give me this now. I want it now. And he said, I've promised you all those riches, but you can't separate the promises of the gospel from the resurrection. The resurrection is coming. We leave the truth then, and I think this is where it leads us into number two, is that when we don't get what we want in the now, we then alter the truth to find an alternative way to get what we want now. We even lean into Wicked desires to satisfy the desires of our own heart. And I challenge us as we go into this, I I look at these and I hope they will be received with the heart that I intend them to be received. But we hear things like, well, I know God doesn't like divorce. But you just don't know how bad it is. I know God doesn't like divorce, 
and our heart begins to look for a different way to alter it. Now, let me say this, and I taught on divorce back when we were going through Mark. I think there are reasons for divorce in Scripture. I think Scripture lays it out for us. And we can disagree on what those are to some degree. That's all good and fine. Here's the reality. Divorce happens because we live now, not then. And there's brokenness now. We're going to see that happening. But you cannot stand back and say, well, I'm just unhappy, so therefore I'm out. That's not fair. That's not faithful to truth. God, you say, well, hold on a second, Pastor. You're telling me God doesn't want me to be happy? And you see how you take a half-truth and we turn it into a lie now? Because how many of you say this morning that God wants you to be miserable? No. God doesn't look for you to be miserable. But at the same time, his whole goal is not for you to pursue happiness at the cost of truth. And this is where we untether our compassion and our sympathy and our desire for comfort from truth. We must stay tethered to truth and do right because it's right. We can't separate the two. Divorce is not okay for every cause. We don't have a blank slate to do that. You say, well, pastor, I've been through a divorce and I feel like you're being a little harsh. My desire is not to be harsh on you, but I've never met somebody who's gone through a divorce that recommends it. Everyone says, man, if you could not do that, I would encourage you not to do it. And the grief and the, 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 the betrayal that happens in those moments grieves the heart of our Lord. Let me make something very clear. Just because she burns your toast, it's not time to get a, on a dating site. And God forbid that we would walk that kind of line. But that we would be faithful to who God called us to be faithful because sympathy and compassion cannot trump truth. But we hear things like, well, we're supposed to seek self-fulfillment and self-actualization and pursue your dreams. And we say to our children, you can be anything you want to be, which is the biggest lie in the whole world. You can't be anything you want to be. It's just nonsense. You, you were created for a purpose, not to be what you wanted to be. Pursue what God created you for. How do I find what God created me for? Pursue him. He'll lead you. It's amazing when we pursue him how he leads us where we're supposed to be. And, and I, I challenge us that we would not believe this. You say, oh, so pastor, God doesn't want us to pursue dreams. He doesn't want us to have fulfillment. No, that's not what I said. God has great purpose and great plans for your life. However, the call that he has for us is not pursuing what we want but denying ourselves. As a matter of fact, he went so far to say, if you hold on to your life, you'll lose it. But if you'll lose your life for my sake, you'll find it. We're called to deny ourselves, and this world struggles with that. Well, Pastor, you, would you want me to be miserable? No, but I'd far more want you to be holy. I far more want us to pursue the right things. Now, here's the area. We've already touched on this in the satire we read earlier but the sexual revolution of our culture today. And this is coming into the church. And this is why it's so important that we draw the line here. And I, I've done a number of weddings through the years, and I know there'll be many more. And often I'll get this look, there's a deer in the headlights look when we have the wedding interview. Okay, you guys are sleeping together, right? Pastor, you know about those things? I'm like, yeah, okay. 
And it's just this look of like utter terror. And I'm like, you need to understand that what you're doing is sin. And I'm not interested in putting a rubber stamp on what you've been doing. But I do want to call you to repent of what you've been doing and let's make it right. And I'll help you walk into that. And the look on people's face is like, oh man, we thought we are going to have to find another preacher. You see, we justified as, as, as a, when I was a young boy, it was in hushed tones. Oh yeah, they're, they're living together. And now it's like, no big deal. Just, it's just a hookup culture. It's just whatever. And by the way, that's inside the church. And it's just as wrong today as it was when I was a boy. And it'll be wrong in 100 years. Fornicators, God will judge. God corrects fornication. Now, there's nobody here standing up and saying, hey, sexually pure, never did anything wrong, never had a bad thought. That's not where we're at at all. We're saying that it is wrong and it needs to be brought right and accordance to truth and you can't let Disney romance sell you down the river that your sin is okay. It is placing you under the judgment of a holy God and needs to stop. And we could go down the line and, and, and I think if we're not careful, you were thinking, Pastor, I thought you were going to address the homosexual sin first. Well, I'm going there because here's the reality is we've gone down the whole long line of sexual sin and now homosexuality and transgender uh, agendas, all of these things are just a ballooning of man doing what he wants to do. And we run down this whole long line and here's the reality. You can't look at it and say, well, I feel bad so therefore we justify it. I'm grieved for every person that has any confusion in their heart about who God made them or what their desires are. But the fact is, every person in this room has evil desires that live in your heart that you must confess and forsake on a daily basis. And we are called to do that. You see, there is going to be a day when all of that is set right, but that's not today. Sometimes we're called to carry unfulfilled desires in our heart because we don't understand the brokenness and the depths of the brokenness that we live in. We cannot justify it, church, because our compassion overtrumps truth. And then we begin to cut the message of the gospel. The most loving thing we can tell somebody is this, that the gospel offers everything to a repentant sinner. Everything is offered, the riches of heaven. The Son of God was crucified for your deepest, darkest sin. And if you come in repentant faith before him, he will wash you white as snow. He will bring you into his family and make you one of his. But the gospel has nothing to offer an unrepentant sinner. And so when we alter what sin is, we are leaving people on the outside of the gospel. We're not inviting them into the gospel. We must stand firm on this. We cannot trim what Christ has said. I think we're in agreement on abortion. I think of any place, the idea of abortion still creeps into the churches thinking that somehow or another it's right. And opinions of the country have changed over the years on that and it goes back and forth. But here's the reality. We believe that God creates every child in that womb, that it is his creation, that it is life at conception, and God ordained it. And, and I, I love what one pastor friend of mine said. He said, the question really is not even when conception has, but when did the will of God start for that child? The will of God started for that child before they were even conceived. God had a purpose and a plan for that child. 
and we would believe that, but we hear stories that would cause our hearts to break for the young mothers that have been abandoned and have been misabused and mishandled. And man, our hearts should break for them, but you cannot alter truth because sympathy calls it. We must stand on truth. And church, I think we need to be generous in our stepping in and helping. We need a rising up of men and ladies that would say, you know what, I'm not just going to watch Fox News and rail on the abortion problem, but I'll volunteer somebody to help with it. Challenge us on that. God would not ask me to suffer, some would say, and yet he calls many to suffer. In the present, we cannot bail in bad circumstances because we feel sorry for ourselves. We cannot alter the gospel to make us feel better. Sometimes we're going to be called to suffer. Job suffered, Joseph suffered, Paul suffered, our Lord suffered. All of these things are true, and so they get in by saying, well, you can have it all now. They get in by saying compassion is more important than truth. And in verse number five, Paul says, we're separated in distance, but we're connected in heart. He said, I'm walking with you. He said, my heart's there with you. Look what he says in verse number five. Though I am absent in body, yet I am with you in spirit, rejoicing to see your good order and the firmness of your faith in Christ. He rejoices that they held the line. This is a military term of order and firmness. It's the unbroken ranks of the church that is marching forward. And, and, and I challenge us this morning, we cannot stand back and applaud ourselves for being faithful in all areas except the point of attack. Because if we're unfaithful in the point of attack, we're unfaithful in all areas. And I'm bothered by this just a little bit because often I'll hear in the news media or on Twitter in different places, well, why are Christians always bringing up the sexuality issue? That's all you guys want to talk about. And I just want to kind of stop and go, we didn't bring up the discussion. Culture brought up the discussion. We're just calling us to stand on the line. With a line. And by the way, it's not a new line, okay? The church has believed this for 2,000 years. It's not something new. The new idea is that now somehow or another we've changed everything and everything is relative. That's the new idea. And so if we could just for a minute, the burden of proof is on you. We're standing where we've always stood. And I challenge us that we would stand there graciously and lovingly, but stand there. Stand there firmly based upon Scripture. Because if we alter that, we alter the gospel and we leave men unrepentant before God. And that is a damning place for them to be. At every spot on the line, the army of God has one message and one message alone. Christ. Christ. Faithfully, Paul stood. He saw them standing faithfully, and he rejoices in their standing. And remember, he's rejoicing from a prison cell. And maybe that's why he could say in 2 Timothy 2.9, I am bound in chains, but God's word is not bound. God's word is still going forward. And for his glory, it is made known. So then in verse number six, I want you to see this, and this is the conclusion this morning, I'm just going to touch on this. Therefore, as you've received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him. I want you to read this with me. Therefore, as you've received Christ Jesus, 
not as the Lord, but you receive Christ Jesus, the Lord. So he's not talking here about the means by which you believed on Christ. This is how you receive Christ Jesus as Lord. No, he said, as you've received Christ Jesus, the Lord. This is the package. This is the person and work of Christ that you have received. As you have received this body of truth, so walk in this body of truth. Don't cut part of this body of truth off and add what you want onto it. Don't trim this out. Don't mix something else into it. But as you have received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in Christ Jesus the Lord, not mixing it or detracting from it. This is what we walk in. We walk in him alone. You started with this belief in the person and work of Christ. Now don't fail to walk daily in the same Lord you received. Don't be tempted to trim from him one ounce of who he is or what he has done. So walk in the Lord, not a lesser Lord, not more Jesus, not less than Jesus, but Jesus. He said rooted, built up, established. And I think it is fair to say rooted in the faith built up in the faith, established in the faith, as you were taught. And then what does he say at the very end? Abounding with thanksgiving. Abounding with thanksgiving. And, and, I, and I think this, I think the frontline weapon, church, for the church today, for the believer today, the artillery right there at the beginning is thanksgiving. You say, well, pastor, that just, I mean, we should only talk about that like the end of November, you know? No, Thanksgiving is the rebar of the book of Colossians. It holds it all together. Because what does Thanksgiving do? It drives us back to who Christ is. It drives us back to what Christ has done. You see, a thankless people, a thankless people are thoughtless people. And thoughtless people become critical people. And critical people are easily deceived. Because here's the thing. I'm not going to sell you a new vacuum cleaner until I convince you yours is no good. I'm not going to sell you anything until I tell you you're lacking something. And by the way, it doesn't matter how much you have. If you're dissatisfied with it, I think Satan sold them one tree when they had a whole garden. And Satan turned God's positive into a negative. And what a blessing they had that they turned their back on. He said, I want you to be abounding in thanksgiving. How do you give thanks? When do you give thanks? Do we make thanksgiving a part of our daily routine where we thank God for what we have and what we've been given? Thank God for what his son has done for us. Remind ourselves I had a dear brother call me this week, and he said, Pastor, how you doing? And I said, doing well. I said, well, okay, I'm a little discouraged, actually. And he just said, well, let me remind you of some things. You were purchased by the blood of Jesus Christ. You are rooted in him. He calls you his own. He loves you because you're his child. He has reserved a place in heaven for you. I mean, I was ready to charge hell with a squirt gun when he got done. Because when we begin to praise And to give thanks to God, we're reminded that we serve the God who created it all. We serve the one who is resurrected from the dead, and we march forward for his glory. We're abounding in thanksgiving. We are good at analyzing problems and trying to make them go away. Okay? 
If you think we don't want to make problems go away, just go look how many pain relievers are at CVS right now. We look for all kinds of ways to get rid of problems. And I'm not saying it's wrong to get rid of problems, but let me just say this. Let's learn to give thanks for the prison before we seek release from the prison. That whatever it is that we find ourselves in this week, let's stop and say, God, what are you teaching me here? And now, if there is a normal and a right and a godly means to change the circumstances that we're in and find a better state, then that's good and fine, and God has given us those means, and he's glorified in them, but let's not fail to thank him for the flat tire before we go about patching it. God has a purpose in it all. We have longings in our hearts that will never be satisfied until the resurrection. And I love this by C.S. Lewis. If we find ourselves with a desire that nothing in this world can satisfy, the most probable explanation is that we were made for another world. And this morning, you and I have been made for another world. Our hope is in the sweet by and by. And our hope right now is that Christ will never leave us nor forsake us. Let's pray together this morning. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for your people. Lord, they're attentive listening. Lord, thank you for them giving a hearing to what we had to say this morning. Lord, I pray, Father, that the word of God would grow, go deep into our hearts. Holy Spirit of God, I pray that what is said would be received in the spirit it was intended. That, Father, you would do a work in us, make us more like Jesus. In the precious name of Jesus, we ask all these things. Amen. Let's stand to our feet.